Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and the subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, a rum and coke and a gin and tonic, please. Thank you. This might be the most gorgeous theater I've ever seen. And it's one of the oldest and most historic. But we didn't come here to get a history lesson on the palace. We came here to see a show. And a drink. Oh, yes, thank you. This is definitely one of those chapter shows in the history books of the theater. It marked the beginning of the corporation moving on to the Great White Way. Welcome to the Big Apple, Disney. Well, come on, we've got three flights to go up. Wait till you see the inside of the theater. everyone and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host Hope Bird and with me is my co-host Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the Disney musical Beauty and the Beast. So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today, we are visiting both the Palace and the Lundfontein Theater as we return to the 90s and visit the Alan Menken and Tim Rice musical, Beauty and the Beast. So, without further ado, be our guest. This landmark musical opened at the Palace Theater on April 18th 1994. And with its opening, a whole new kind of producer was ushered onto Broadway. It was the first time a major corporation took the lead in backing such a production. And how fitting that the Walt Disney Corporation was the one to do it. They used their Disney magic to help usher in a new era of tourism to the city and clean up the area now known as Times Square. But more about that later. Let's get back to the mechanics of the show. With its music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Howard Ashman and Tim Rice, and a book by Linda Wolverton, the musical and literary creative team set the show up for success with familiarity, but also reinvention. Meanwhile, the other designers became magicians in creating the animated world in real life. I'm referring to the costumes by Anne Hold Ward, lights by Natasha Katz, Sound design by T. Richard Fitzgerald, hair by David H. Lawrence, prosthetics by John Does, and pyrotechnic design by Tyler Weimer. Sprinkled on top was the whimsical choreography by Matt West, and all of this was brought together by the creative mind of director Robert Jess Roth. The show would go on to be nominated for nine Tony Awards in 1994 and would walk away with the Tony Award for Best Costume Design. So, let's dive into the show itself. Mm -hmm. 
So, the lights go down, and the overture starts, mm -hmm. and we get the prologue. And what's cool is the prologue is basically narrated, but then, like, acted out, no words, on stage. Mm -hmm. um, Very big and elaborate, because this is the scene in the animated show where everything's told through stained glass. So they did a very good job, like, translating it into, like, this very fantasy uh, scene played out before you. Yep. And so we learned that the beast used to be a prince who was very cold-hearted and self-centered. And one day a poor well, beggar woman came to the door mm -hmm. seeking kind of shelter. And the, be the prince turned her away. And she was like... Don't be fooled by appearances. Please Here, let me in. Here, here's this rose. It's enchanted. And he says no. And then she turns into an enchantress. And he asks for her forgiveness. And she's like, bye, girl. And she casts a spell on him and everyone in the house, turning him into a beast, turning everyone else in the house into inanimate objects. And basically the spell is... Um, Until he can learn to love himself... And have and, someone love him for who he is. Yeah, or it, it's uh, until you can learn to love and to be loved yourself, you will, you will stay, stay this way. Yeah. And he has until the last petal of the enchanted falls rose. Off the enchanted rose to kind of complete this task. If not, he and the rest will stay that way forever. So that's the prologue. Lights go out. And then they kind of come up again, and we see Belle. And we have this beautiful flute music, kind of like birds singing in the morning. And that's where she kind of introduces us to this little town. And it's very quaint, very calming. And then all of a sudden, the town comes to life with bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. 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 <laughs> yeah. Everyone's coming out with their dog and bread. And, I mean, all of it. When we start meeting the townspeople. We start meeting Belle. We get a sense of what this village is like. We find out that Belle is really into books. Yep, the bookkeeper <laughs> gives her one of her favorite stories to keep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of find that everyone thinks that's odd. You know, apparently, knowledge is odd. Right. What a time to be alive, I guess. And then, we out of a burst of smoke-ish... A gun <laughs> goes off behind the crowd, and we meet... LeFou at first, <laughs> yes. who goes, I got it, I got it. He's holding up a net to catch something. And it, we find out it's supposed to be a bird. He's trying to catch a bird that's been shot from the sky. He thinks he has it. He's so confident. And the bird falls on his other side. Great slapstick comedy. But then we see... Gaston appears from behind the crowd with all of his machismo manly madness. Think every stereotype you can. I mean, it, they, they went to... they. Just when they thought they, like, stereotyped this guy, they went a step further. Mm -hmm. um, and he points out that he's going to marry Belle. That's the one he wants. All that jazz. Everyone's story starts to overlap. We finish this big Broadway opening number. Hooray, Belle! Cool. So. We follow Belle home. Yep. And we meet her father, Maurice. Who's an eccentric. Uh, inventor. Not person, but also inventor, Yep. And uh, she's like, I think I'm strange and I'm weird and everyone thinks that. And her father assures her like, no, 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 you're not strange. We're not strange in our family. Well, we had an uncle. Never mind. Don't worry about the uncle. But <laughs> we're not strange. Don't worry. So he says, you know, I've got this invention and I'm going to take it to this, uh, I don't know, like a, a convention. Yeah, something like that. And everyone's going to love it and want to buy it and we'll have it made. And, and we can go somewhere else, you know. 
And so they put the finishing touches on this invention, and Maurice heads off to the fair. Um, and Belle gives Maurice a knitted scarf that she had made. And um, while Maurice is out in the woods, he's traveling, he gets lost. He realizes he's lost, and that's when we hear the wolves. And he's like, oh no, the wolves are coming. So he's running away from the wolves. He sees a castle. He enters the beast castle for safety. And that's where we meet the servant. <laughs> Yay. Uh, he first meets uh, Lumiere, the candelabra, and Cogsworth, uh, the clock. Um, oh, and Babette, too, the, the maid. Yes. The feather duster. Yes. And they meet uh, uh, Mrs. Potts. Mrs. Mrs. Potts, Potts. And Chip. I can't forget Mrs. Potts. And Chip. Uh, and Chip, her son. And they all meet him, you know, and they're like, oh my gosh, you need to come in. The wolves, yes. But then the beast finds him. And is like, I don't know who you think you are. No. Locks him in the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the scene transitions, and we're back in the town, and Gaston is, I would say, wooing Belle. But it's more like, let He's- me tell you how your life's going to be. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that you think that that's awesome, and it's not He, he awesome. sings a song called Me, and it's it's the most chauvinistic song you've probably ever heard. Um, you'll never be able to get it out of your head, but he's basically, that's his form of like proposal and whatnot. And Belle's like, uh-uh, not doing this. She's very polite about it, though, because she's a good peasant but French she, girl. But she is, essentially escapes him, and then she has this great soliloquy moment where she sings the song Belle. Well, the reprise of it. And we learn that she just, she wants out. Mm-hmm. Well, after this, LeFou returns kind of to the town, but he's wearing the scarf that um, Belle had made for her father. And that's when she realizes, like, something's happened to my dad. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you have that scarf? So she goes into the woods to look for him. She ends up at this castle, and she finds uh, her way in, and she... She actually finds her dad in the dungeon. Yeah. And she's like, I got to get you out of here. And well, then the beast appears. And he's like, again, who are you? What's going on? And she's like, let my father go. You have no right. And basically, a trade is broken where Maurice can go, but Belle has to stay. Mm-hmm. And that's the deal that's made. So she's like, fine. And um, the beast says, fine. And you don't get to say goodbye to your dad. Go. Go to your room, essentially. And then they release the dad. Belle goes to her room. No goodbyes. Heartbreaking. Um, and this is and on her way to the room, the beast says, you are to meet me for dinner. Doesn't ask her, but like, if you're hungry, come on down. He's like, no. You, me, six o'clock, dinner. Um, so she, then she's locked in her room, and she sings this beautiful song, Home, um, kind of coming to terms with, is this what my life is now? Yep. And that's when Mrs. Potts and Madame de la Grande Bouche, the, the, the teapot and the wardrobe come, and they're like, it's not so bad. Come on. Right. You know, yeah, and they sing fine. a reprise of Home, and they're trying to cheer her up. Well, back in the town, um, Gaston is pretty He's butthurt. Upset. Let's yeah, be honest. No, he's he butthurt. He is. And um, he's at the bar, and, just, you know, I can't believe someone, you know, doesn't want me. And LeFou tries to cheer him up, and they sing such a fantastic drinking song. Everybody knows Gaston. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a guy, that Gaston. (laughs) Well, when they finish, and they're all in better spirits, that's when Maurice rushes in. He he was let go of the castle, and the first place he goes is to the pub. And he rushes in, and he tells everyone the story. There's a beast, and he's locked Belle up in the castle, and we've got to go get her. I need help. And they all just laugh at him, like, 
this guy is nuts. But something about this strikes Gaston, and he formulates a plan. He, start, well, he starts to formulate a plan where he can basically use this and use Bell's dad to get Bell. So we see the, 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 the groundwork laid for that. But then we go back to the castle. The Beast is sitting at the dinner table waiting and waiting and waiting, and Bell's like, Not going to do this. No, I'm <laughs> mad at him. And Cogsworth goes to be like, Hey, you're late. He's waiting. And she's like, I'm not going down. I'm mad. So he comes down, and he, Cogsworth tells the Beast like she's not coming. And the Beast proceeds to go find her, and they have a big shouting match and everything. And it kind of ends in a victory for Bell, but he says, look, if you cannot eat with me, you don't get to eat at all. Good night. Bleh. <laughs> yeah. And he goes to sulk. Um, in the West Wing. Yeah, because he notes that, like, this isn't working, and I'm going to be like this forever, and no one will love me, and I can't love anyone. And one of those, like, why can't I be a nice guy kind of moments. Mm-hmm. Well, Bell gets hungry, because, you know, like you, you do. do. <laughs> it's been a long day. She needs her baguette. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all need some baguette. Bread is life. So she heads down to the kitchen where the servants are, and despite their master's orders... They're like, oh, you're hungry? And it's like instant Jewish Mexican mom thing where it's like, come in. You haven't eaten for days. Eat, sweetie. Eat, eat. And they put on a show-stopping number, one of the best in Broadway history, Be Our Guest. It is phenomenal. You see every piece of China silverware, everything, dancing, singing. Um, It's a cabaret-style show, you know. Um. And they feed her, and, and it's fantastic. And after that, Belle gets a tour of the castle, finally, because remember, she's basically seen the front door of the dungeon and then where she's been locked up. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And now the kitchen. So Cogsworth and Lumiere give her a tour. And that's where the best joke in history happens. Which is? As you can walk through the halls, you can see the Baroque fixtures. And as we say here, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. Yes. Oh, puns, ladies and gentlemen, puns. Well, her curiosity leads her to the West Wing, which is somewhere that like everyone has forbidden from. But she wanders, like you do, um, and she's mesmerized by the rose floating in the jar. She's like, I wonder what this is. And she reaches out to touch it, but before she can... The beast, like, stops her, yells at her, shoves her in the process, and, like, get out of here. And she's so afraid by this that she leaves the castle. And she just runs. Yeah, she's just like, bye, Felicia, I'm out of here. And the beast realizes, like, he has made a horrible mistake. This might have been his last chance to get someone to love him for who he is. And he sings this beautiful number, If I Can't Love Her, just remarking about, you know... If I can't love her, how can I expect someone to love me? Like, this is awful. So that's how Act 1 ends. Mm-hmm. We start Act 2, and again, remember, Belle just left. So she's in the woods, she's running, and we hear... The wolves. wolves. And we realize that Belle's being stalked and about to be attacked by the wolves when the beast comes to her aid. Da-da-da. And uh, he fights him off, but in the process he gets injured and he collapses. No! <laughs> That was Belle's chance to leave, but what does she do? No, she's a good person. She's so like, she, oh no, he's injured. I must go take care of him. So she goes to him, and 
she takes him back to the castle and she cleans up his wounds and nurses him and they have this argument about whose fault it is that he got hurt as one does. It's a very hilarious scene. <laughs> um, but then like you start to see this kindness and friendship start to form. And out of this wanting to give her like a thank you gift and to show her his affections. And I don't think he realized, well, maybe he did, but how big of a gift it is, um, the Beast gives Belle the huge library. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's epic. And, and the set is epic. Uh, and this just thrills her. And she notes that there's a change in, in his personality, which leads to the servants being like, hey, there's a change. Oh, you know. And so they, they notice that. And then the servants sing a song about themselves, which is human again. Great little like French brouhaha drinking song. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, the beast asked Belle, will you please come to dinner? It's the first time he set, doesn't it's order the first her. time he he's had manners. <laughs> so we've laid that groundwork and it's like, okay. Meanwhile, we now go back to the village. Back to Maurice and Gaston. And Gaston and LeFou have concocted their plan. And there we see that they're meeting with another man. We later learn as Monsieur uh, Darquet, who is the asylum owner. And they have a plan to basically lock Maurice away and blackmail Belle into marrying Gaston. Hmm, where have we heard this story from? So we're like, oh no, trouble ahead. And so while that's happening, we then come back to the castle. And now we have the iconic Beauty and the Beast scene. Um, They sit down for a lovely dinner. You have the yellow dress, the blue suit. They have, you know, it's the dinner and the personal ball. You have the beautiful song, Beauty and the Beast. It's, yeah. Tale as old as time. It's beautiful. (laughs) And and really, it, it is a gorgeous scene. Um, the Beast plans to tell Belle, you know, hey, I love you. Instead of saying that, he goes, I wonder if you're happy. <laughs> Are you happy here? And she says, I am, but I miss my father. Mm-hmm. She's honest. And so he offers her his magic mirror to see her father. She sees that her father is sick and lost somewhere in the woods. And he's fearing for his life. So even though the beast knows, like, I've only got, like, two hours left before that last petal falls and I'm done, he's like, I think it's more important that she saves her father. Um, And it's, you know, considering where we started, it's like, whoa, you're caring about someone else. Shock. Wow, growth. So they have a tearful (laughs) goodbye and she goes off to get her father. Belle finds her father, brings her back to their house in the village. Brings her back to her house, Yeah. yeah. And uh, nurses him back to health, Belle the nurse. And um, she explains the transformation that she's gone through as well as the beast. And that's when a mob arrives um, at their house, led by Gaston, to take Maurice to the asylum. And Belle proves her father's sanity by showing the townspeople the beast is real by using the magic mirror. Because they're basically saying, he's mad, he's mad, he thinks there's a beast out there in a castle now, that can And talk. now she's mad. And she shows him that the beast is real, and that's when the town people are like, new enemy, hold on. No, and then she, different, she different didn't bad. realize it until after. She's like, uh-oh, this is bad. So the townspeople immediately fear the beast, 
Um, even though Belle's like, no, 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 he's gentle, he's cool, it's all good. We just danced and had dinner. It was fantastic. Gaston catches in her tone that she's falling for him and recognizes him as a rival. So he organizes the mob to go kill the beast. And Belle and Maurice decide the best thing they can do is go warn the beast. However, the mob and Gaston get there before Belle and Maurice do. And so we have the battle where the servants kind of keep most of the lynch mob at bay. And it is a hilarious lynch mob. Like, this is perfectly (laughs) choreographed. We're having fun. Yes, it's tense and it's angry, but it's fun at the same time. Mm -hmm. However, Gaston... um, Decides he's like, nope, I'm going for the beast because... And he's making his way up to the tower. Mm -hmm. The beast, after Belle's departure, has lost all will to live is waiting kind of for the mob to reach him. So Gaston gets up there. Um, there's a vicious fight that immediately happens. Um, and he, and and the beast quickly overpowers Gaston. And he's about to kill him, but he spares his life because he sees the fear in his eyes. He shows mercy. Um, and that's when Belle arrives, and Belle and the beast are reunited. And it's like, all right, we're going to have a happy ending, but just when you think... Here comes Disney with a twist. Gaston fatally stabs the beast. You know, Uh and you're like, no, but it's okay, guys. Don't worry about it. Disney magic's coming up in a second. But in the process of Gaston attacking the beast, he also puts himself in peril and falls to his death. Yep, he loses his footing, falls to his death. Bye, Felicia. At least that's one bad guy out of the way. So the beast is lying there. Dying and Belle's holding him and she's assuring him, don't worry, you'll live, you'll live, you'll live. But they both know he's a goner. So she's, you know, I mean, it, it's human. She's begging him not to leave, all this stuff, and he dies. And then Belle is sobbing over him and she says she loves him, she loves him. I think she kisses him. I don't remember if I'm being honest. Anyway, after she says, I love you, the last rose petal falls. And all of a sudden, the transformation begins. And it is really cool. I thought the transformation, like, in Shrek was cool. This is really cool because, like, the beast's body goes up in the air. There's all these flashing lights. Mm-hmm. And he's transformed into a human. Mm-hmm. And Belle doesn't... Belle doesn't recognize him at first. Um, but then when she looks in his eyes, she's like, Oh, my gosh, it's you. She sees the beast within. And then they kiss and they sing and we have the finale and everyone's happy and all the all the servants are back to normal and it's a happy time and Disney magic and we finish the show and, and it's wonderful. Um, so that's the, the story of Beauty and the Beast. to note in this show um fun fact (laughs) that beautiful gold dress we talked about uh Mm -hmm. from the song beauty and the beast for the ball it weighed 45 pounds and it had to be lowered from the rafters uh for her to wear so it basically Mm -hmm. came over her and it took a wardrobe crew of three people just to get the actress in and out of the dress yeah there was so much beating on it 
it just weighed so much. I'm just imagining this dress being lowered on. You know, her arms are up and there's, you know, like a rocket being lowered on. <laughs> and to watch her walk down the stairs and everything. I'm. If anyone who's listened to this has ever seen the live production of Beauty and the Beast, um, preferably like a, um, at least a professional one or the Broadway production, Belle is not, you know, uh, I'll say... What, what's the the correct terminology here? Not athletically built, if that makes she's sense. She's a little petite. She's, yeah, she's, she's slim and petite. And now she's carrying this 45-pound dress. And I'm just like, girl, get it. You know, mm-hmm. Belle's probably not the person you want to meet in the alley after the show because <laughs> she might look small, but I carry a 45-pound dress, you know. Right. And there was so much money poured into the costumes for this show. Um and there were so many different people involved. Uh, for the costume for Lumiere, there were 40 different people who worked on just his costume, including a pyrotechnician, because the they made it so that his his hands, his his candelabras actually lit uh, up. Yeah, for They fire. were it was actual great. flames. The so. most expensive costume, believe it or not, we haven't even talked about yet. It was from Madame de la Grande Boucher. The... Madame de la Grande Boucher. Okay, look, I didn't take French, so <laughs> I'm just going to make it up. She's the wardrobe. And, oh my gosh, it, it <laughs> I, I'm having flashbacks of being seven again and just seeing this, this giant wardrobe <laughs> coming on stage and shelves popping out. And I remember thinking, I don't understand how they're doing that. But it was so clever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I do know that oftentimes whenever this show is done, just because of how heavy and intense the costumes are, they have to have, like, special seating accommodations. Like, there's these... there. I don't know if you know this, but there's, like, these, like, single, single pole seats. It's basically, like, a pole, uh, like, an extending pole with, like, a little seat on it so you can, like, sit. And, like, one of the productions of Beauty and the Beast that I worked on, one of my jobs was to crawl up underneath the wardrobe and, like, hold the seat so she could sit down for a moment because it took us 20 minutes for her to get in the costume. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, so Beauty and the Beast first opened on Broadway on April 18th, 1994, after an out-of-town tryout in Houston. It ran for 13 years for 5,461 performances, finally closing on July 29th, 2007. It first opened at the Palace Theater, and then on November 16th of 1999, moved across uh, 7th Avenue and Broadway to the Lunt Fontaine Theater to make way for another Disney musical, Aida. A very interesting fact about the show was that the song A Change in Me was added for Toni Braxton when she joined the cast um, to play the leading role of Belle. Um, the song was such a hit that it remains to the sh- in the show to this day. So let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. First of all, it's the first Disney production. It's the first time we saw a corporation backing a show on Broadway. Right. This, this was the show <coughs> Excuse me. that inspired Disney to officially make its step to, to Broadway. Um, now, to be fair, they previously made a New York stage debut with the production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at Radio City Music Hall, but it wasn't... I mean, I wouldn't even put it in the ballpark like this. So this was a full-on realization of 
you know, a Disney show mm-hmm. put on the stage. Well, and also this was the first time an animated film had been brought to the stage. And that's a big, big deal. I mean, there, I'm, there have been other film adaptations before this. Mm-hmm, but this not, was an animated film. Right. And the closest thing we've ever seen to something like this before was Cats, where we had humans playing creatures. Right. But now um, we have this whole new design process to make humans appear as inanimate objects. Right. And so I really think that the show did a lot for the innovation of design and and how we think about shows as a designer and the importance that you know, the different areas of design really play into the storytelling. It really emphasize the fact that these different elements, particularly costumes, in my opinion, I mean, they all play a, a, a factor in this, but costumes especially really play a role in the storytelling. You know, the bigger impact, I feel like, is a societal impact. So we could go on and on about, like, we could have four episodes on New York and the theater industry and, and the even Times Square and... at this point in, in time in the 90s and even in the 80s. But here's the deal. So prior to when Beauty and the Beast came in, particularly late 80s, early 90s, Times Square and the theater district, in that area around it, it was a den of squalor and vice. You had tons of adult entertainment, prostitution, drugs, just the real underbelly of the city. And it was just based right there. Broadway existed, you know. The theaters were still there. They were still doing their shows and that. But it was not a family-friendly area. Like, Vegas was more family-friendly than Times Square was. You didn't bring your family to to New York to go see a Broadway show. You brought your family to New York to go see the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building and the World Trade Center. And you probably ignored Midtown because you didn't want to expose your kids to all of that, you know. And... There's a fantastic show, and I encourage everyone out there to go see it and find a way to see it. It's called Broadway the American Musical. It's a documentary series by PBS. Yeah, and they talk about this. And the CEO of Disney at the time, who was Michael Eisner, remarks that when Beauty and the Beast, the film, came out, there was a review in New York that said Beauty and the Beast was the best musical on Broadway. There's a movie theater in the theater district. So they reviewed it as the best musical on Broadway. And that got them thinking, we should maybe bring Beauty and the Beast the musical on stage. But there were a lot of questions because they're like, we're Disney. This is a family-friendly show. Well, and at the time, children didn't go see theater. I, I mean, I mean, to some really. extent. I mean, cats helped bring that. But there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't a huge market for, for that. But more importantly, just the... Uh, the area wasn't good. And so at the, the then mayor, Rudy Giuliani, saw a huge opportunity right in front of them, an opportunity to clean up Times Square, to make New York a better place. And so when Disney showed interest in wanting to come to, to Broadway, he told Michael Eisner and the Disney Corporation, hey, look, we'll clean up the area. We'll make it, fam- we'll make it safe. We'll make it family friendly. And Michael Eisner was like, I, are you, I don't think you can do that like it. It's a free country. These people have rights and and all this. And in the documentary, he tells a story. And Rudy Giuliani goes, look at me. And Michael Eisner does. And Rudy Giuliani says, they will be gone. And that sold it for them. So as Beauty and the Beast is getting ready to come to New York, New York itself begins to clean up Times Square. And all of a sudden, there's a huge 
you know, economic and societal transformation of Times Square and the surrounding area. Well, and really starting to, like, really hone in on the fact that Times Square and Broadway is a tourist attraction uh, in and of itself. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, you see major corporations start to take interest, not only in the theater, but in the surrounding areas. If you go to Times Square right now, I mean... It's all it's one big advertisement, you know, and and on all sorts of corporations, either they're advertising there or they are um, they're based there, you know. Yeah. And um, I mean, and Times Square's always been a hub for like for like ads and stuff like that. But it really wasn't like a destination. But it's 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 known as a crossroads of the world. And truly, it became that way because it's not just a place for corporations, but for people now. And so this is, Beauty and the Beast was that driving force that cleaned up Times Square and really brought that area into what we now know know it as. Um, well, and I think that the other nice thing that Beauty and the Beast did is it made it, it made going to the theater a family affair. Exactly. It made it family friendly. It was a kid focused story. It was a fairy tale yep. that adults could also enter- get entertained and escape in. And producers started realizing like, we don't have to focus on just adult issues and tell that on the stage. We can actually go with younger people issues. You know, I, 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 I I don't want to misspeak, but I'm trying to think. I, I feel like Grease is kind of the only thing, really, that deals with younger kids. I'm sure there's other shows, and I just can't think of them right now. But, you know, this opened the door of, like, hey, let's start exploring these other stories that entertain children and adults alike. The show also brought a new generation both to the theater and to the stage. You know, this is probably one of the most performed show on amateur and community stages all over the world. I mean, quick poll. How many of you people either have seen or done Beauty and the Beast in high school? You know? Right. Well, and for me even, this was my first introduction to theater. I was 10 years old, and there was a performing, like a kid's performing troupe, and my mom's like, hey, you love to perform and whatnot. Do you want to go do this? And I was like, yeah, I want to be in Beauty and the Beast. And just as a side note, I was understudy for Belle. Just saying. Putting that out there. So yeah, so it, it, it was a show that opened up. It brought a whole other generation into the theater, whether it was in the audience or on or backstage. And very few shows in, in, in the tomes of theater have had that power. Um, let's talk about if the show's relevant. I think the show is still relevant. And I got to be honest with you, when we first, when this podcast started as a brainchild a while ago, I was on the fence about my opinion, but as we sit here and we record and you, the listener, are listening, um, you know, it's it's been a rough... It's been uh, a rough... Uh, it's been a rough 15 months. Yeah. We've, we've dealt with the lack of theater, and we've still got at least, you know, four more to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this show now has kind of... Uh, it's time on the Broadway stage has kind of come and gone. It is what it is. But here's the thing. I I think the show is relevant. I think it's mainly suitable for like regional t- houses or touring productions, definitely high school productions. But all that being said, given the times we're in, 
it might provide the perfect escape and comfort for audiences today. It's familiar. Um, everyone at this point has, you know, grown up with Disney right. in some form or fashion. And we want the familiar, we want the comfortable, we want and that's the thing, in these days of trouble and turmoil, we like familiar and the great story with love and good conquering evil. We need that. Mm-hmm. You know? So I mean, plus a show about isolation and letting people into your home so that you can come out of isolation. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying if there's a producer out there listening to this, we'd be loved to get on board. I've got 10 bucks. What does that buy me? You know? Um, it's also a story about not judging a book by its cover. Wah, wah, get a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh it's about accepting people for who they are and for loving someone for what's on the inside, not the outside. It's such an important message now more than ever. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like, can someone please say it again for the people in the back? It's for lo- about loving someone for what's on the inside, not the outside. Well, and I also feel like, you know, just thinking in those terms, I think that there are plenty of ways that this show can be reimagined to even help play that story up that goes along with the, you know, I hate to say it, but the political agenda of, this, of American society right now. It's true. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our personal stories about experiencing this show. So, away we go. So, I myself got the pleasure to see the show back at the Palace on Broadway in 1996. Besides that, I have seen a touring production of it in Tucson, Arizona, and a couple of uh, community productions. And I have seen several community and regional productions of this show. Uh, one of the first like shows I worked on professionally was Beauty and the Beast at a local community theater here in um, Salt Lake, which was a lot of fun, really kind of crazy. We did it in the round, so it was really fun to see that show kind of reimagined in that way. And of course, I did tell you about my understudy as Belle, which is very important to remember. <laughs> so... Um, my, my two best experiences, uh, the first one, as I mentioned, I saw the tour come through, uh, Tucson, Arizona. I remember my mom, my mom is the one who got me big in the theater. Um, so shout out to you, mom. Look, I'm saying hi, mom. Um, (laughs) she, I remember her taking, uh, me and my aunt Nancy and my two cousins. Um, we went to the theater and I remember, because I remember we also saw Les Mis at this theater, but... We saw the show, and I remember there were, like, you know, like, the railing in front of, like, a balcony or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember us, like, sitting on the floor for whatever reason, and we were hanging off the, like, leaning over the railing, and we were just enthralled by the show. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really cool to get to share that experience with them. So, my other memory, which is up there in, like, my top five memories um, of the theater... It involves me. Uh, I got to see the show in 1996, like I said, uh, at the Palace Theater. Um, and I got to see the legendary Gary Beach uh, in his role as Lumiere. Um, and I was seven years old. If any of you listened to our last episode about Phantom of the Opera, 1996, I also saw my first Broadway show, Phantom of the Opera. Same trip. 
And I was much more interested in this show than I was in Phantom of the Opera. I couldn't imagine why. <laughs> and after the show, I, I go back. We're back by the stage door. I'm being seven. I'm just kind of like, you know, hey, I'm seven. I'm bored. And I wander away. And I actually wander through the stage door and backstage like one does in the 90s because what's security? Who that? <laughs> well, I wander back and I'm back on the stage of the Palace Theater where Beating the Beast is playing. And who should walk out and find me but um, Gary Beach. My mom, frantic, um, who can't find me, panicked, trying to find me, you know, goes to the stage door man, uh, security, and they let her in. They're like, you know, we'll, we'll help you find him. And that's when they hear there's a Gary Beach is giving a tour to this lost boy. And my mom realizes it's me. So he's showing me around the stage, and this is how we do that, and here's how the beast transforms, and yeah, da 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 da. Mom comes up with my brother. Oh, thank goodness you found him. And Gary Beach, seriously, was the nicest human in the world. He continues to give us all a tour, not only the stage, a backstage, the dressing rooms, everything. The kindest human I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Um, so that all finishes up, and I'm just, I'm amazed because I'm like, yeah, cool, this is all great. I mean, I didn't really realize what opportunity had just dropped in my lap but i was like this is incredible and i remember he was just such a nice guy um and it was cool to get to see all that we left i'm going to talk more about um what this wonderful man has done for me but i just want to chime in and tie this in um six years six years six years later my mom is in new york on her own at this time gary beach was in the hit musical the producers which he won a tony award for uh, for playing Roger Debris. And my mom went to go watch the um, Broadway Softball League. And Gary Beach was playing. And after they finished playing, she goes up to, you know, just say hi and see all the actors like one does, you know, fangirl. Anyway, Gary Beach, six years later, and I'm sure thousands of people recognizes her. And while she's talking to her, to him, he goes, and how is that little boy of yours? Uh, Andrew, was it? How is he doing? Is he still incredibly curious? My mom could not believe that this man remembered not only like that I wandered back there and remembered me at all, but remembered my name and everything. And he was like, you tell him I said hi, and he needs to come out and see one of my shows, and I'd love to see him again. So that will forever remain in my, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm there just, are no words. There are no words. So I have more to talk about the wonderful man that is Gary Beach, but I'm going to save that for later episodes. Mm-hmm. So that's my incredible story about the amazing Gary Beach and Beating the Beast. And I think it just goes to show the impact that not only the shows, but the people can make on our lives. So I just highly encourage anyone who loves theater, is in theater, you know, just remember it's a communal experience. Absolutely. And every little piece of it can really just play a, a small part of who we are as people. Absolutely. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. You'll be able to catch Beauty and the Beast on tour in the UK 
or at several regional houses across the U.S. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Music for Wildlife by Fox. Other music on this episode provided by Pierce Murphy, BJ Block, and Don Pemberton, Jesse Spillane, David Mumford, and Billy Murray.